Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Healthcare in the United States is complicated. Now throw in the pandemic and it's clear the system really needs an overhaul. Coming up, Kaiser Health News reporter Julie Appleby joins us to break down who pays for what in a pandemic. We know COVID-19 testing is a vital tool to help control the coronavirus. How have Americans been affected who don't have health insurance or who don't have the money to pay for care if they get sick? Connecticut's healthcare advocate will also join us later to answer our questions and yours. First, many of us are waiting for a vaccine so our lives can return to what we once considered normal. Worldwide, scientists are working hard to develop a vaccine. Joining us now with an update is Carl Zimmer. He's a New York Times columnist and author of 13 books about science, including A Planet of Viruses. Also, he's a Connecticut resident. Carl, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. You can also join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Carl, the New York Times has a great vaccine tracker on its website. We'll tweet out a link at Where We Live. But if you could tell us, starting with the numbers, how many vaccines right now are in development? Well, uh, there are 31 vaccines that are actually now in clinical trials on humans, um, and there are by my count, uh, at least 80 uh, more vaccines that are in active uh, preclinical research. That means that they ha- they've been being tested in cells and, and animals, but haven't yet been tested in people. But I've uh, found that uh, a, a number of those people, uh, those groups are, are well, well on track to put them into phase one trials as well. How groundbreaking is this moment because we're in this pandemic and you have scientists around the world working on a vaccine to combat the new coronavirus? There's really nothing to compare this to in the history of vaccines. Um, it, you know, we the history of vaccines is, is populated by some of our great scientific heroes like Jonas Salk or Edward Jenner. Uh, but, you know, these people were didn't have a whole lot of company in the work they were doing. I mean, there weren't a whole lot of vaccines being developed at once. Uh, And also, you know, it's important to realize that vaccines usually take a really long time to go from uh, design to uh, clinical trials. Um, It can take over a decade on average for vaccines to uh, take the whole journey to being actually approved. So the fact that, you know, it's only been uh, eight months since we got to know this virus and already we have so many vaccines in clinical trials, some of which are showing some really promising results. There's been nothing like this. Hmm. Tell us about some of those vaccines, again, that are in clinical trials. You mentioned showing promising results. We've seen in the headlines Novavax and Moderna as some of the companies in clinical trials now. Can you tell us more about what they found? Sure. So uh, Novavax is a uh, an American company. They have, um, but basically, basically they take little <clears throat> proteins and pack them into uh, a vaccine and inject them into people. They've started safety trials, 
And they can also see that they get a really strong response of antibodies. So that's, that's nice. That's what you want to see. And now we're going to wait to see if it's actually uh, effective in people when they get to phase three trials. Um, Moderna takes a very uh, novel approach, one that has never actually been used in a licensed vaccine before. Um, they basically inject the gene a, a genetic form of instructions for making a viral protein uh, into our cells. Uh, and they're in phase three trials now. They've had some pretty promising results as well. Pfizer uh, here in Connecticut, um, they are also using uh, a similar vaccine. The molecule is called RNA. Uh, and they just reported um, their latest round of results, and they're showing that uh, they figured out how to make their vaccine uh, safer than it was uh, in this original formulation. And um, they're saying that um, they may be ready to submit their results to for potential approval in October. So this is moving fast. Mm. When you talk about a phase three, uh, maybe back up a little and um, walk us through the different phases. I'm assuming phase three is when uh, the the number of people that are in this trial um, are definitely, there's definitely a greater number of them enrolled. Yeah, yeah. So, so there are basically, roughly speaking, four stages of making a vaccine. The first is called preclinical, and that's where you design the vaccine, test it out on cells and animals. And then when you think you're ready to go with people, <clears throat> you start with what's called a phase one trial. Phase one trial is usually just a couple dozen people, maybe. Uh, and there you're just injecting it into people and, and checking them very closely for uh, issues of safety. And you might start to look to see if they're making the kind of antibodies you want. Uh, and then in phase two, you expand on that um, with ideally like hundreds of people. And there you're starting to look at things like, well, you know, what happens if you change the dose? Uh, and once you've gone through those uh, rounds of trials, then you're ready for phase three. Uh, and phase three is typically very large. Uh, the, the Pfizer and other companies are planning on, you know, on the order of 30,000 people. And there you're actually comparing people getting the vaccine on a large scale to people getting a placebo. Uh, and then you can really nail down whether it works or not, and you can look for uh, less common uh, safety issues. Uh, and so phase three, uh, once those trials are done, if they're promising, then companies submit those results for, uh, for approval, um, either for a license or in this case, we might, because we're in such a crisis, they might get something called emergency use approval. Hmm. And you said that Pfizer uh, may be close to looking for approval in October. That's what they said uh, yesterday. Oh, wow. Uh, when we think about the people participating in these trials, who are they, Carl? People like you and me. Um, you can, I, I believe uh, Yale New Haven is uh, part of one of the trial networks. That I think it's Pfizer. Don't quote me on that. You could, you can uh, look into that. Uh, and I mean, these, these trials need people to volunteer. They're not going to work and we're not going to get out of this pandemic unless uh, people help us to figure out whether, which of these vaccines work and which work well and which are safe. Uh, so uh, the, all, all of these companies uh, that are running clinical trials in the United States, as well as other countries, are actively looking for volunteers. AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson, um, the list goes on and on.
You're hearing Carl Zimmer here on Where We Live. He's a New York Times columnist and author of uh, many books about science, including A Planet of Viruses. We're talking with him to get an update on uh, this race for a COVID vaccine. You can join us if you have a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, One of the reasons I was curious about the people who are enrolling in these trials, Carl, is uh, just the other day, uh, Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal was in a press conference to raise awareness about disparities in vaccine access. And they highlighted that while minority communities represent about 50% of COVID-19 cases in our country, they make up only about 15% of those participating in clinical vaccine trials. Is that concerning when we think about you need to have a wider representation when you're in, uh, when you're doing these trials to make sure that these vaccines are safe? Yes, um, especially in these large phase three trials, um, you you want to be uh, getting a, a representative group of people because uh, you want to be looking around for potential impacts that, um, you know, might not affect everybody, but might affect a certain portion of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, that and that also is important um, in terms of vaccine uptake. One, one or more of these vaccines is going to get uh, approved eventually, I would predict. Um, but it's not going to do any good unless people take it. Um, and if people are just don't trust the whole process, um, then that's going to uh, cause some serious problems. And so, yeah, it's, <clears throat> um, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's a hard problem to crack um, just because, for one thing, you know, these pharmaceutical uh, companies are, you know, just, you know, just trying to like fill up their, their trials as, as quickly as they can. And so that puts a, a pressure on, you know, outreach to, to all sorts of different groups. But um, it really is important that, uh, that they, it really does reflect our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you uh, mentioned trust, and I thought that was important to highlight because when we hear that the federal government, you know, again, this Operation Warp Speed to try to find a vaccine as quickly as possible, um, you know, the fact that it takes a, a long time uh, to develop a vaccine, can that, you know, be a crisscross in, in the way people are thinking about, well, is it going to be safe because we're, we're on this, uh, it seemed like a, a, a sped up schedule? Well, you know, uh, the, the problem here, I think, is that um, people are not aware of how vaccines used to be made and how scientists have been trying to improve that process. You know, the fact that it takes 10 years to, on average, to develop a vaccine, uh, vaccine makers aren't happy about that. You know, that's, you know, the, in those 10 years, many people die of these diseases that people are trying to develop vaccines for. Uh, and this is particularly a problem when you suddenly have an explosive pandemic, like what we're dealing with now with COVID-19. So people have been talking for years about how can we speed up the vaccine process so that we can be ready for that disease X, as they sometimes would call it. And disease X is now here. It's COVID-19. Uh, and they came up with a bunch of good ideas for how to accelerate things without sacrificing safety. You know, like uh, one of the biggest issues is that, um, you know, it's very risky to uh, prepare in advance to be ready to deploy a vaccine before you actually know the vaccine works. And so <clears throat> traditionally, 
uh, vaccine makers would not start getting ready for industrial production until they were totally sure that they had an approved vaccine. Uh, and, you know, we, if, if Pfizer says in October, like, okay, we, we've gotten everything ready to go, and then the FDA comes back, let's say in December, and says, yeah, that's great, you can, you can, we're going to give you a license. Then if Pfizer then said, like, okay, we're going to spend the next year building factories and, and getting them fired up, and then we'll be ready in two years to distribute the vaccine, I don't think anybody would be happy. So there are ways to accelerate this you know, to start preparing for manufacturing in advance, for example. Um, but the crucial thing is not to sacrifice the safety along the way. So they're still doing the classic phase one, phase two, phase three type uh, research. Um, and so, you know, that it's incumbent that, that uh, we make sure that these vaccines are safe, even if we're getting them done more quickly. Mm. Well, you mentioned uh, the traditional ways uh, with vaccine development. I'm wondering if you can get into some of the science behind these uh, n these innovative ways that are being explored um, as all these uh, different companies are working to find a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, we talked a little bit about Novavax and Moderna. Um, Moderna, I believe, um, is using mothworms. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the science behind uh, what they're doing. Um, right. So, so well, actually, uh, Moderna, I don't believe is actually using the mothworms. Um, uh, it's Novavax and some of these other companies that are, um, and, okay. but it's very cool. And actually, um, uh, and, uh, there is basically mothworms, uh, you can infect them with a, a virus of their own. It's called baculovirus. And, that baculovirus basically like makes lots and lots of protein balls inside of these insect cells because that's how it reproduces. Uh, and the protein balls contain viruses. So you can genetically engineer the baculovirus to make, uh, say, a coronavirus vaccine protein. And now if you just plug this vir baculovirus into insect cells in a culture, they will churn out huge amounts of the protein. Um, Protein Sciences, I believe, here in Connecticut, uh, uses this kind of approach for flu vaccines. So um, it's a it's a great uh, kind of technology. Uh, very weird sounding, but it's actually really really useful for for making these protein based vaccines. Um, there are all sorts of other um, cutting edge techniques that are being brought to the fore. Like, um, for example, you know, if you if you're presenting uh, if you're using one protein fragment in a vaccine. Um, it turns out it might be more effective to bolt together dozens of these protein fragments onto one so-called nanoparticle. Uh, and so scientists have been building vaccines like that. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of uh, scientific innovation that's being tested out for this, for this uh, new vaccine. Mm. Uh, we talked about uh, trust and this race uh, to develop a vaccine. Uh, we've all seen the headlines that Russia claims that they have a vaccine that's approved. What can you tell us about that, Carl? Well, um, you know, Russia in July um, a publicly registered uh, a phase one trial for uh, a vaccine. Um, a number of countries uh, are, are have been doing that. Um, but then within just a few weeks, they suddenly were saying that their, their results were so good that they were, going, they were planning on going ahead with um, in, industrial production, which was kind of confusing because we, no one had seen any of the phase one or two data, and there didn't seem to be any, any phase three trial. Uh, and then last week, 
Vladimir Putin declared suddenly that uh, this vaccine that they now call Sputnik V had regulatory approval um, and they were just going to go ahead with it. And he was saying his daughter had gotten a shot and so on. All the vaccine experts I talked to are scratching their head about this and are very worried because um, they just they've they had skipped a crucial step. They had not actually demonstrated that it's safe and effective. Um, they're now saying that they're going to start phase three trials, but um, it, it really is hard to figure out, um, you know, how they were able to justify approving it in the first place. Um, it, you know, people I've talked to seem to seem to feel that it was a lot about public relations, and you know, there was speculation. Well, Putin is not doing very well in the polls, and so this is a way, you know, to you know, Sputnik Five. It's mm. it's. It's good branding. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, we really cannot uh, afford to to sacrifice uh, vaccine research and ensuring that thing, these vaccines are safe for somebody's political agenda. And that's true for any country. Mm. And it's worth noting uh, that scientists in other countries, including China, are participating in the normal scientific process, uh, peer reviews, doing these uh, phase three uh, trials, Carl. Yeah, it's a it's a really uh, remarkable uh, process to watch, you know, as we add more and more countries to the vaccine tracker. Just yesterday, Taiwan uh, started their their own first phase one trial. Um, there are trials getting ready in uh, Thailand and there's a couple underway in India. Uh, and so there's yeah, it's there, there, this is there's a sort of a global brain trust that's that's at work looking looking for uh, vaccines that are going to work. Uh, so we're all hearing that um, if a vaccine is approved uh, this year, it could be available early next year. But available to who, Carl? When we think about uh, just uh, the population in our country alone, you know, how would that all um, move forward? What are you hearing? Yeah, you're going to have to deal with the fact that uh, even if these um, vaccine makers are, you know, getting an early start on manufacturing vaccines, um, there will still be, you know, not enough on the first day for everyone to get the vaccine. Um, you know, there will uh, the companies like like Pfizer and Johnson Johnson are have said have been made public statements that. In 2021, over the course of 2021, they will, they hope to be making well over a billion doses each. So, um, you know, eventually we can may get to satisfying worldwide demand, but um, but those first few months are going to be a challenge. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion about um, you know which groups might need to get it first. Healthcare workers come up a lot for a couple of different reasons. One is that they are at high risk just from the nature of their job and also because they could potentially be super spreaders that, you know, if someone is infected uh, in a hospital and is starting to see lots of patients, uh, you know, they you could have trouble. Um, and then, you know, there, there have been discussions about, well, who's at most at risk? So, you know, for example, Blacks, Native Americans, they are bearing, uh, Latinos are really bearing the brunt of this uh, pandemic so in the United States. So maybe they should get priority for our vaccine first. Uh, the elderly, um, you know, because the the risk of them getting infected are is, is so much more serious than, you know, a 20-year-old. Um, but, you know, these are discussions that are still ongoing. Mm. 
You know, unfortunately, we've seen in, in the last few years, especially the number of people that are starting to really believe that uh, they want to deny vaccine science. They don't want to take vaccines. And so is there concern out there, Carl, that once a COVID-19 vaccine is in place, people will, will refuse to take it? What does that mean? Uh the more people who take a COVID vaccine, um, the more lives will be saved. And it might not be your own life, but it might be the life of someone in your family, might be someone in your neighborhood. Um, that's because even if a, if a COVID vaccine is not 100% effective, what it will do, even if it's 50% effective, if enough people get it, then you dr dramatically reduce the ability of the virus to spread. Uh, and so we will be far less likely to see these kind of explosive spreads of, of the virus in places like nursing homes, for example. Uh, if people say like, oh, well, I, I, I don't want to get it because I don't, I don't trust people, um, you know, you know, it, I, you know, I would hope that people would be, you know, willing to sort of learn about how vaccines are made and tested um, and to learn to trust vaccines that deserve to be trusted um, and then to then to take one for the well-being of society as a whole. It's going to be like masking, you know, mm -hmm. by putting on masks, we are saving other people's lives. Vaccines will be the same way. I want to thank Carl Zimmer for joining us here on Where We Live. He's a New York Times columnist, author of 13 books about science, including A Planet of Viruses. Carl, we thank you for your time today. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we know testing is a vital tool to control coronavirus cases, and we've heard testing is free, but how has that turned out for people? And what about the cost of care if you or someone you know has gotten COVID-19? We talked to Kaiser Health News senior correspondent Julie Appleby, and Connecticut's healthcare advocate will join us too to help answer your questions. The number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We know healthcare is complicated in our country, and that hasn't changed in a pandemic. Joining us now to talk about uh, healthcare over the last several months on the phone now is Julie Appleby. She's senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Julie, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Also with us on Zoom today is Ted Doolittle. He's the healthcare advocate for the state of Connecticut. Ted, welcome back. Thanks so much, Lucy. Great to be here. And we want to let our listeners know if you have a question about uh, who pays for what during the pandemic, uh, including COVID-19 tests, or if you have a, a situation that arose um, looking for care, you can join us at uh, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Julia, I wanted to start with you uh, because uh, you've done a, a lot of great reporting for Kaiser Health News, including this interesting profile of a woman, uh, Wendy Epstein, I believe is her name, um, where uh, she wanted to get tested and her kids tested for COVID-19 before visiting her elderly parents. Uh, what, would, what was she told uh, when she inquired about how insurance would pay for the cost of these tests? 
Right. You know, just like a lot of us, we're trying to think, you know, how can we get tested if we need to go on a, a trip to see elderly parents? So this is what Wendy's situation was. So she called her physician and her doctor said, you know, it, 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 this looks like a medical need and insurance would likely pay for it with no out-of-pocket cost to her. So then she called her children's pediatrician who saw it a little bit differently. You know, he said that the test would count as a screening test since the kids were not showing any symptoms, and so she probably would have to foot the bill herself. And so this sort of highlights this dilemma right now, what's covered and what's not. And a lot of this goes back to legislation that was passed back in March. Remember March? It seems like a long time ago now. But but Congress passed two laws, and those laws basically said that testing for COVID needs to be covered without any co-pays or deductibles or costs to patients. And since then, there's been some guidance sort of interpreting that, and it covers any kind of diagnostic test. So you know, one of those fast tests or the tests that take a little bit longer, those tests are covered so long as it's ordered or administered. Mm-hmm. And then in June, the Trump administration issued some additional guidance, and it gave some further explanation, and it said that tests and related treatment, like if you go to the doctor office visit or the ER visit cost, um, things like, you know, maybe x-rays taken to see if you have pneumonia, those things do need to be covered without a copay um, so long as these tests were um, primarily intended for diagnosis or treatment. And that June guidance also excluded things like back to work or public health surveillance. So that's how we get back to Wendy. What was it? Is it primarily related to diagnosis or treatment, or was it a screening test? And that's kind of the dilemma that some people are finding themselves in um, now because this guidance um, sets some parameters that, that maybe are hard to interpret. And even some of the congressional Democrats that drafted these laws wrote a letter to the Trump administration saying, that's not uh, what they intended. They took issue with this. They said the wording was not in the original law that it was you know, only for uh, coverage of tests that were primarily intended for diagnosis or treatment. So that's kind of where we're at. As mm-hmm. to Wendy, um, Wendy kind of put off the test and did a little more research on her own. She called her insurer and she talked to them and she was assured by that insurer that if she went to an in-network provider, she would not face a copay or a deductible so long as the, the um, tests were coded correctly. So that's kind of looping back to her. She did get it covered, mm-hmm. um, but it did raise that question in her mind for a while. And if someone were sent a bill, how much do these does this test cost? What do you know, Julie? You know, it really ranges. Um, we've seen some, some re- studies that show it's anywhere between 20 and $800. I think on average, we're seeing it around $100. Medicare, for example, reimburses up to $100 for these tests. And that, that may just be for the test. There may be um, uh, additional charges for uh, the visit, um, that, that type of thing. So it ranges. $800 is, <laughs> is, can be pretty expensive for a lot of people. I can't imagine getting that bill uh, for getting the test and um, related uh, uh, expenses. Uh, you know, Ted, you're again uh, the office, uh, you're, you lead the Office of Healthcare Advocate as our state healthcare advocate in Connecticut, very clear from the governor uh, that they, residents should not have to pay for COVID-19 tests. So can you walk us through uh, what you've heard over the last several months uh, from people has that indeed um, been the fact that they haven't been billed for a COVID-19 test? 
Sure, Lucy. So, uh, yeah, the Office of the Healthcare Advocate, for those who don't know, anybody who's uh, got a link to Connecticut lives here or even works for a Connecticut company gets their insurance through them. We have a team of nurses, attorneys, paralegals, and others that can represent them for free in any type of situation related to their healthcare coverage. And that could be if you think a, a COVID-19 test was covered and, and you're getting charged for it, uh, we can assign a case manager and try to help you uh, that way. But in terms of what we're seeing, I have been, uh, frankly, pretty pleased, Lucy. Um, we have uh, had not very many cases of folks who, uh, for instance, have insurance, think it should be covered, and it's not covered. Um, uh, I think there were a couple early on. Now, we, you know, we would only get the folks that know about OHA, uh, the Office of the Healthcare Advocate, and we are the best kept secret in state government. So I don't, I don't think that uh, the fact that we've been contacted doesn't mean that there's not a listener out there or more than one listener out there who have this very situation. And, and certainly I would encourage them to call in or to call us up at OHA. But uh, so far, it seems like certainly the carriers are doing what they had pledged to do, um, generally speaking, from what we can see from the business that we're getting walking in or emailing us. Hmm. It's good to hear that that's been the case uh, from uh, what you've heard, uh, Ted Doolittle. I'm wondering, Julie Appleby from Kaiser Health News, that you know, while insurers have been paying for the full cost, what does this mean for our premiums in the future? You know, that's a really good question, and that's one that's um, being debated as we speak. Insurers right now are working on drawing up their premium uh, costs for next year and submitting them to state insurance departments. And it's a real interesting issue because at the same time as there's these costs for covering tests, and some insurers, by the way, have also pledged to cover the cost of treatment of COVID without a copay, so your hospital bills, that type of thing. And some of those are expiring now, but some of them are still in effect, so some insurers are pledging that. So those costs have to be factored in. But then on the flip side, look how many people have been very worried about going to the doctor and they've put off things and they're not going Mm -hmm. in and claims are down. And a lot of insurers are posting record um, profits at the moment. And they're looking at having to give rebates because under the Affordable Care Act, they have to spend a certain percentage of their income on medical care um, or issue rebates. So they're looking at maybe having to do some pretty hefty rebates next year. So all of this is factoring into premiums. That said, um, we're seeing some premiums go up and some go down. I, I looked up the Connecticut Insurance Department numbers, and the insurers who have submitted for next year for individual and small group coverage it's ranged from a, a, a drop in premium of, of about 2.4% to an increase of 15%. And it all averages out to about a 6.3% increase in premiums for next year, which is less than it was this year. And again, the insurance regulators are going to be looking at these submissions and they may or may not grant them as requested. So that's what you're seeing in Connecticut. I think nationwide it's similar. We don't know exactly how this is going to play out in premiums because they're still working on it and they're trying to factor in these costs and a lot of unknowns. Like, will we have more people hospitalized toward the end of the year? What about early next year? What are we going to see over the flu season? That that type of mm-hmm. thing. 
You can join our conversation as we talk about uh, health care in the U.S. during a pandemic. With us on the phone, Julie Appleby, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. On Zoom with us, Ted Doolittle, health care advocate for the state of Connecticut. It's 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Ted, uh, when we think about the different ways people have insurance in Connecticut and the protections that are in place to keep them from being billed uh, for things like COVID-19 tests, is it a patchwork system? Can you walk us through people who have employer-based versus Husky and, and others? Sure, Lucy, I can do that. Um, and uh, first, I want to build on uh, the the Connecticut information that mm. Julie was just giving about the costs of the of the COVID. Uh, she mentioned uh, accurately that the overall increase is, you know, on an average uh, that they're seeking for next year is 6.3%. Just to dig down deeper a little bit into that, they're asking for COVID-related uh, increases of about 1.7, 1.8%. So of that 6.3% increase that they're asking for next year, um, they're, they're predicting and, and they, you know, the insurance actuaries are very educated and smart people, but they're just looking at a crystal ball like the rest of us. So they don't, they don't, they're, they're doing their best to guess, but of course they are sophisticated. They're, they're thinking that uh, their uh, costs are going to increase about 1.8% from COVID-19. So that's just something to, 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 to note. And that includes testing and treatment. Um, so one, one, Thing. When I saw that figure, I frankly thought, well, geez, that is a lot of money, obviously, close to 2%, but it's not 8% or 10% or 20%. So mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like the disease from the financial perspective is going to be a big deal breaker for the U.S. We have to manage it uh, from other perspectives. And obviously, the health uh, uh, and the social stresses and everything are very real. But at least in Connecticut, they're predicting uh, you know, less of a financial hit. Uh, from the COVID specifically than I had expected. Um, but to get to your question, you're asking about the in, insurance patchwork as it relates to, to COVID. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you're absolutely right that we do have a patchwork system, COVID or not. I mean, you can have asthma or you can have cancer. It's a patchwork system. And, uh, you, you know, you're getting uh, jerked around when you change jobs, you have to change insurance. Um, if you change jobs and you paid off one high deductible uh, in the middle of the year, you get a new high deductible plan with a new job, you have to pay that off. All those patchwork things uh, do exist. Um, I will say that it's interesting in COVID that, they, uh, that the powers that be in Washington, D.C. and in Hartford have made it a little bit less of a patchwork. Um, like, for instance, regardless of your insurance status, you should be able to, with a little work, get a free test in Connecticut. Um, you're going to have to um, go on uh, 211.org uh, or call up uh, 211 to make inquiries. I think the Connecticut uh, 211 site is 211ct.org. That's 211ct.org. Then you can put in COVID and your zip code, and, and you will uh, uh, get a list of, of test providers. Uh, make sure when you make sure to call them up first, explain that you don't have insurance and that uh, and that you need it to be free. Uh, and so if it's not free, um, you'll need to to move on to another site. 
There are sites around the state, for instance, in the greater Harper area where I happen to live, I know that the um, in Pope Park, the recreational center there has, uh, has uh, free testing and that's a rapid result one. Uh, that's another thing you'll need to ask what, if you need a rapid result versus if you can wait a day or two, hopefully not more than that because then the test becomes useless. But um, to get back to your question on the patchwork, it, it, to me, this is interesting that they've come in and uh, uh, kind of given us a, a little bit of a more unified system in terms of everybody can get free testing for this one condition. And if you like getting a free COVID test, uh, which you deserve, um, <laughs> you know, we need to start thinking down the road um, and beyond this show, which is focused on COVID. And, uh, you know, if you liked having that uh, unified coverage for COVID testing, um, then maybe we need to figure out ways to eliminate the patchwork. And that's a different uh, different show, I know. But um, but th those are those are some of my thoughts about the, the patchwork nature. A little bit better in the COVID uh, uh, area, Lucy. That's good to hear. Uh, Julie Appleby, you've also written about uh, issues that popped up when uh, the pandemic was fairly new in our country and people were going to the hospital and they had symptoms, but they weren't able to get COVID-19 tests because we know we knew that was an issue, the scarcity of getting these tests and having the supplies on hand. So what happened to these residents, uh, these Americans, uh, in terms of the kind of bills they were they're receiving? Yeah, that was very interesting. And again, like you said, this was part of this patchwork, it's part of this early on issue. So, you know, early on, I, I spoke to a gentleman in Florida who was early March, he just got back from a, a cruise around the Caribbean and he, he got very sick when he got back. And he went to his primary care doctor who, who kind of took one look at him and did a couple of things and said, you know what, you need to go to the emergency room. I've already called them. They're expecting you. This is a public health emergency. You have to go. So he went to the emergency room and they met him in the whole protective suits. They did all these tests. And then he got a big bill um, later. And this was at a time when insurers were saying, hey, we're going to waive the costs of testing, et cetera, et cetera. And he never got a COVID test. And this was the key thing. He never got a COVID test because at that time he didn't qualify. He didn't meet the criteria. He hadn't been traveling in the countries where uh, at that time the CDC was saying you needed to be tested if you'd come back from there. So he didn't get a test. So the long and short of it was um, – he got this big emergency room bill. So he, he, he and others that we spoke to who were in there in early March or April but did not get a test for whatever reason, sometimes did get these big bills for the x-rays or the CT scans or the emergency room visit. And then here's where the patchwork comes in. Each insurer kind of handled it differently. So we, we interviewed a number of different insurers. I sent out emails to about nine different insurers. How, they, how did they handle this, these early on cases? Did they go back and look for everybody who got like a pneumonia diagnosis or an x-ray or something but didn't get a COVID test and then go back and, and waive their copay? And a few, a couple said they did some retroactive review. Most of them um, said only if they... Um, if the person had been labeled as having COVID, but how would they know if they'd had COVID if they give, didn't give them a test? So bottom line in those situations was that it, it was on the consumer. They really needed to appeal that to the, both the provider, the hospital or their doctor that sent them the bill and their insurer. And in some cases they did get their co-pays waived and the treatment, the cost of the x-rays and that kind of thing waived. And in other cases they did not. So it was kind of a mixed bag. I think as Ted was saying, 
uh, most insurers now are covering those things. There's less of a question, but this was early on. And, mm-hmm. and the law says the test has to be ordered or administered. And these people were in a catch-22. They didn't qualify to get the test and didn't get the test, yet they had all these related tests. They may well have had COVID when they got these bills. Mm-hmm. Julie, uh, little... Lucy, can I jump yeah. in and, and make yeah. a quick uh, build off of what Julie just said? Uh, so one one thing that uh, um, I, there was a somewhat little known uh, special rule uh, emergency regulation out of D.C. that came out in May that uh, for certain types of insurance actually waived the uh, appeals deadlines for uh, for contesting um anything really uh you know a a coverage dispute like like what julie was talking about so if you are listening today and think gosh darn it this happened to me in february this happened to me in march but now it's too late guess what it may not be too late give the office of the healthcare advocate a call and we'll try to determine if the uh, appeals deadlines that are being waived for uh some types of plans during this COVID emergency apply to you and we can go back and open an appeal, even though it was quite a long time ago. I'm going to put you on the spot and have you tell our listeners the number to reach you, Ted. Oh, well, thank you for for (laughs) doing that. Uh, The number to reach us at is 866-466-4446. That's 866-466-4446. Or if you have web access, go to ct.gov slash OHA. That's ct.gov slash OHA. And uh, you'll be able to uh, get in contact with us through any of those means. Mm-hmm. That's Ted Doolittle, healthcare advocate for the state of Connecticut. Also with us today on Where We Live, Julie Appleby, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. We're going to continue talking to them after the break. And you can join us too. Do you have a question about how your insurance will pay for your COVID-19 test or the cost of care in the last several months? 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today on the phone, Julie Appleby, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, and on Zoom, Ted Doolittle, healthcare advocate for the state of Connecticut. You know, Julie, we know this pandemic has had a huge economic impact on so many residents, people who either lost their jobs or they've had reduced hours, and that can complicate things because people, many Americans, get their insurance through their employer. I think I saw a statistic. In one of your stories, 60% of non-elderly Americans have employer-based insurance. And so what did we see um, happen um, as this pandemic uh, moved forward in terms of people having access to money to pay for their care? Right. It's, it's, it's complicated. You lose your job, you're losing your money, right? You're losing your income, and then you might, might possibly also lose your health insurance because of the way our system is set up. Um, 
which, by the way, kind of grew out of um, post-World War II wage and price controls at, at the time. Um, there wasn't a lot of private insurance, but uh, there was a real fear about inflation. So Congress passed some laws that said, uh, hey, we're, we're, you can't give a lot of raises. They really controlled raises because they didn't want to see a lot of rapid inflation. But that didn't stop employers from offering other benefits like health benefits. So that's when we saw the beginning of this tying your job to your health insurance. So so employers start offering health insurance to attract workers and keep them. And we've gone that route ever since. Other countries, as you know, went in a different direction. But however, yes, so if you have a job and you lose it, you might well lose your insurance. And there's been a number of studies that have come out and trying to estimate how many people have lost their insurance during this pandemic. And I don't think we have a clear answer, but it's tens of thousands, if not millions of people have lost their insurance. And so then what do they do? And there are a few options for people. The Affordable Care Act is one. There's a special enrollment period that people who've lost their jobs, and there's a few other reasons why you could qualify for special enrollment. Um, If you've lost your job, you can qualify for that and and your health insurance Mm -hmm. with that job. You can qualify this enrollment period and see if you can sign up and buy your own plan through the Affordable Care Act, some of which might come with a subsidy. But you only have 60 days after you lose that coverage, so people um, need to not wait on that. The other big area where people uh, who have lost their coverage in this pandemic may find help is through Medicaid, and these are state federal programs that that don't have a special enrollment period. You, you can sign up at any time. It's based on your income and other factors, and, and that eligibility level varies by state. And um, it, they look at income. They look at part of your unemployment uh, benefit income, but they do not include the additional, you know, what was $600 a week, and we don't know what it's going to be. That's not included in, in counting towards your Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And then some people can also stay on uh, their former employer's coverage through a law that's commonly known as COBRA. And basically, you pay the full price. Yeah, it's so expensive. expensive. So, so there are some options for people is what I'm saying, and, and I think mm-hmm. we don't really know yet how many exactly people have lost their insurance, but there certainly have been a lot of people who have lost their insurance along with their jobs. Uh, Ted Doolittle, we just have a few minutes left. I know that Access Health CT, which is Connecticut's state-run Affordable Care Act exchange, it did have a longer special open enrollment period, but hasn't that ended? So if someone loses their job, what can they do? What can you tell them? Yeah, thanks, Lucy. No, that's right. it, it, it is it is a, a patchwork system. It's fragmented. It's tough to navigate. What we have done at OHA, for your listeners to know, is we have put together a, a detailed walkthrough of all the different options if you have lost your insurance. So if you go to our website, ct.gov slash OHA, and, and go to the lost your coverage section, you'll be able to drill down from the uh, a high level down to much more detailed on all the different options if you've lost your job uh, and some of them Julie really ably hit on but uh, but but if you need to see that in one place written down and and play around with it to, to, to suss out which options are best for you go to our website um, and go on to the lost your coverage site but remember also, we're happy to help. Uh, this involves your health coverage, and that is our mission. That's our statutory mission. So you can definitely call uh, up and get some coaching from us if you uh, give give uh, OHA a call or uh, or go on our website and ask for help uh, that way. But uh, uh, 
th those are some of my thoughts. On, on terms of the Cobra, one potentially interesting uh, thing that's going on is down in um, D.C., as you know, there's struggle over there whether there's going to be another COVID relief or stimulus bill, whatever we don't want to call it. Uh, one of the elements in the bill that passed the House some long time ago, I think in May, it was a, 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 um, a pledge that the federal government was going to pick up 100% of the COBRA cost. Now, that is just a bill that passed one House, but something to keep an eye on, further relief from the just unbelievably high cost of COBRA. Well, that's good to know. I want to thank uh, Ted Doolittle, healthcare advocate for the state of Connecticut. You've given our listeners some good resources. We'll make sure that we tweet them out at where we live. Ted, thank you for your time today. My pleasure, Lucy. Also, Julie Appleby is with us on the phone, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. We'll share links to your stories and your colleagues at Kaiser Health. Julie Appleby, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. Thanks to Tess Terrible on the phones today. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We hope you have a great weekend. <laughs>